Hurricane Maria, a Category 5 hurricane, hit Puerto Rico September 20, 2017. The storm's 155-mile-per-hour winds and heavy rains damaged or destroyed over 300,000 homes, wiped out the island's power grid, and left millions without access to food or clean water. When the LGO class of 2020 visited the island almost a year and a half later as a part of our domestic plan trek, we could still see the remnants of Maria's fury. But the community that welcomed us was strong and vibrant. The resilience and pride exhibited by everyone we met was inspirational, and we wanted to share some of the amazing operational stories we heard with you. From the leaders of Global Operations Program at MIT Sloan and the School of Engineering, this is the Playbook Series. In this series, we invite leaders of operations and technology at the world's most innovative companies to share a page out of their own leadership playbook. On this episode of The Playbook, we feature two guests with extraordinary stories. The first is Noel Zamat. Noel is a retired Air Force officer who was appointed in 2017 to serve as the Revitalization Coordinator for Puerto Rico's Financial Oversight and Management Board. In this role, Noel worked to bring private capital to revitalize the island's critical infrastructure and promote economic growth. We sat down with Noel to learn more about the operational challenges he faced helping to rebuild Puerto Rico. Note that this interview was recorded in March 2019, before the recent administration changes on the island in August. Uh, I'll start and uh, you know make use of the time. I'm Noel Zamot, N-O-E-L-Z-A-M-O-T. I'm a, uh, a uh, two-time result of the MIT educational system. I uh, did my undergrad in course 16 uh, many years ago and then did an executive MBA uh, later on in my career. So I'm both a uh, Although two degrees, uh, 115, 116, they were uh, light years apart. Uh, I uh, born and raised in Puerto Rico, went to school at MIT, uh, undergrad, went to graduate school in Michigan, uh, was in the military flying airplanes for a long time, doing uh, testing and a number of things. Uh, retired, went into industry, the defense industry, uh, started a company. So I'm also an entrepreneur and uh, I got the call to go to Puerto Rico. They were looking for somebody who had experience in project management and working with federal contracting, uh, engineering background, and uh, just happened to be the right person at the right time. So about two months before Hurricane Maria hit, uh, we are on our way to Puerto Rico, moving away from Boston where we had been living. And my role was to be to attract private capital to attend the critical infrastructure emergency in Puerto Rico. And those words are have meaning. There's actually a critical infrastructure emergency in Puerto Rico based on decades of lack of capitalization for uh, in the uh, critical infrastructure on the island. So we, uh, you know, my wife and I uh, moved down there. Our kids are in school and uh, all of a sudden Hurricane Maria hits. And if you're familiar with how that went in September of 2017, it was pretty brutal. So 
but we quickly refocused our efforts on recovery and probably the most key issue from an infrastructure and policy standpoint was actually rebuilding the power infrastructure on the island. After several months of doing that, and I'll bypass a, a lot of the interesting political developments in the meantime, we had to refocus ourselves once we were essentially stabilized on rebuilding this pipeline for critical infrastructure projects. That amounted to essentially running a startup to build a pipeline of critical infrastructure public works for the island. And what we basically had to start with was three pages of congressional statute and a and four pages of WordPress draft uh, website that somebody had created, you know, over a weekend uh, and nothing else, you know, no structure, no organization, no uh, connections to outside stakeholders or anything like that. No connection really to the private capital providers or the developers. So we had to build that up from scratch. And uh, over the course of about a year, we ended up creating just that. We, at last report, ended up attracting approximately $9.1 billion in interested capital to come to Puerto Rico, uh, built a transparent, automated, automated, accountable website that would essentially automatically run this process once somebody came in. We took a lot of user feedback to develop the engine behind it so that people could actually, with ease, put in information required for a variety of potential infrastructure projects. And uh, that's that was kind of what we, you know, where we ended up. Um, the epilogue of that, I think if I stopped right there, it would sound like a coolest job in the world and probably the most fun thing that anybody could have ever had. You know, essentially go back to the place of your birth and really create something new to contribute to the well-being of, you know, 3.2 million American citizens that live in Puerto Rico. <clears throat> the epilogue is not really fun, though. Uh, and the reason for that is because out of those $9.1 billion projects, we only approved one. $25 million public housing project. And the reasons for that are as important as any of the successes that we've had, but they really, they really talk to a much greater strategic and geopolitical context in which a lot of these efforts are pursued. And I could talk about that at length, but at this point I'll stop talking and answer your questions. Maybe you could expand on that final point. It sounds like there were two phases. Uh, there was the initial win, but then there were challenges in getting projects approved. So what were the factors that enabled you to get to $9.1 billion in interested capital and getting the new process set up? And on the other hand, what kind of leadership would have been required to have better outcomes in terms of dollars actually going to things that are needed on the island? Okay, uh, that's, that's a great question. So part of the reason why I think we were successful, uh, quite honestly, is because we had tried and true approaches, leadership approaches to developing capability uh, in an uncertain environment. And I like, I like to tell my teams, creating order out of chaos. Uh, the first thing was 
getting a team. Uh, but once we got that team, have that team buy into what it is that we're doing. And uh, I, I've reread this book a couple of times and I'm rereading it again, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. It's, it, it sounds you know, like the typical uh, business ease, uh, you know, business fiction uh, text, but the reality is that there's a, a very powerful meaning in it. Uh, he has a saying, people don't buy your what, they buy your why. And I think that applies to a number of places. People aren't motivated by what it is you're doing. They're motivated by why it is that something is important. And in the situation where we were out, that was the very first thing that we did. And we actually plastered it in all our workspaces. We are here to recover Puerto Rico's economy. And that was what my team truly believed they were doing. Uh, I didn't have to, to go too far and, or go too far on a limb, um, you know, trying to explain that we were bringing in private capital to quite literally rebuild the island's infrastructure and economy. And that was our focus. It wasn't a web page or it wasn't a email listing or it wasn't an SQL database. It was, that was the focus. So once you have nailed that why, that big strategic reason and have gotten buy-in from your entire team, every decision becomes a lot easier to make because if that decision does not contribute to that broad overarching objective that has meaning and it goes beyond any one of us, then that's probably not a task worth doing. But if that task directly contributes to that, then your job is, is made a lot easier. So that was, that was probably the most powerful lesson that I learned. Uh, the other part is, is really execution. And execution is the, it's almost the opposite of that. It's, it's taking that lofty goal and looking at that lofty goal every single day and then focusing with discipline on every action that you take, ensuring that whatever action you do take goes towards that. So we actually ran, and I don't know if you've taken uh, the, uh, the uh, designing work class with uh, Nelson Repenning, but we literally created an, a, a, what ended up becoming a $9.1 billion pipeline with a whiteboard, uh, markers and and yellow stickies, uh, post-it notes. And we just had our system where we had our objective at the top of the board and we prioritized things by, by risk and outcome uh, or by difficulty and outcome. And then we had these three areas that we focused on. And each day we went and said, where are we here? Where are we there? Where are we there? And the team would go back and work it. And when somebody would come in, it was great to see for, for a long time, we kept it in my office and our financial analysts would come in every now and then and take a yellow sticky and move it on one side, make a little note on it, take another yellow sticky, put it on the, you know, take it from the backlog side and into the working and go back into his office. And that was, that was a normal day. The process broke down where we got too busy with a chaff to actually run with the discipline of every day, taking a look at what our tasks were, seeing how we could get to executing that strategy and actually taking the steps to do that. So, you know, uh, Don Sol, another one of our professors likes to say that a strategy without numbers is poetry. Um, I think that the corollary to this one is that strategy without discipline is, you know, just a, another drawing on a napkin. So those were the two things that I would say that, that really enabled us to be successful. Number one, spending the time to focus on the things that are really truly important, the why beyond behind what we're doing, make that 
something that somebody could can believe in, something that's meaningful, that's that's important beyond themselves. And then really having at the other end of the spectrum, having the discipline and the tools to on a daily, almost hourly basis, incrementally moving the ball forward to making that happen. To build on that, could you talk about some of the leadership challenges you saw during your work on the island? So the, the leadership challenges that we saw on the island uh, were probably best described by a massive disconnect between the three lenses, the organizational lenses, you know, uh, red, blue, and gray. Um, I had a, a, a saying that every time somebody came to Puerto Rico, the biggest mistake they could make, and actually the federal agencies made this mistake, they just looked at Puerto Rico and said, well, you know, Puerto Rico is 3.2 million people. That's, you know, 27th biggest state, right? So it's probably about as difficult to do business here as it is in, oh, I don't know, Rhode Island or Connecticut or Delaware. And that was emphatically not the case. That's the case if you look at Puerto Rico through a blue lens, a strategic, you know, the, the, the organization itself and just the structure. But when you look at it from a cultural view, and I'm not talking about Hispanic culture, I'm talking about political culture and a relative power, uh, the red lens, then that model completely and utterly breaks down. And that ultimately was the cause, I think the root cause of why this project was unsuccessful. It turns out that one of the things that we prided ourselves in, which was transparency and being able to evaluate projects on uh, independent merits, was actually something that was, frankly, terrifying to a number of stakeholders on the island. Not all of them political. And frankly, I got to say this, this predates this current administration, currently led by another MIT alum. Uh, it predates it probably before he was born, quite honestly. So this is not something that's going to change with one administration. It's not something that's going to change with one fiscal board. Uh, it is something that needs to be addressed and quite likely is going to require outside engagement on the part of federal entities, nonprofit organizations, quite likely the investor community uh, and the capital provider community and the developer community to really make it right. But Puerto Rico is operating in a way not much different than Puerto Rico operated in the 18, late 1800s where you had, you know, the, 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 just a, a persistent, pervasive view that if you are born into the right places and you have the right connections, it doesn't matter about the quality of your ideas. You know, having access to the right people is far more important than actually coming up with any initiative that's gonna move things uh, in the right direction. So there's been a lot of work. This, the current administration has actually quite you know, objectively tried to address that. They know it. They've had a number of initiatives to try to fix it. But frankly, the challenge is far beyond uh, anything that many folks uh, could do. So that's the number one challenge that we have. I was just uh, responding to, uh, I testified before Congress last week, and I'm working on my response to additional questions from Congress. And one of those is how do we fix it? What are the ideas? This exact question of, you know, given all these systemic, you know, gray lens, red lens types of issues in the island, 
how can we actually change them? And you get back to a political situation uh, where you're addressing a challenge that's well known in the business world, which is how do you change culture in an organization? How do you change priorities in an organization? Uh, you know, you have to have this combination of an external and an internal, external change agent and internal champions, and you have to have a, uh, you know, a clarity of objectives, and you have to have a clarity of roles and responsibilities and an understanding of what things are valuable and not. But that's really hard to do when you're in a democratic environment and you're dealing with, you know, political entities uh, that whose whose livelihoods extends to the next election. Um, so it's it's challenging to to solve a 100 year problem in four year chunks where every four years you reinvent the wheel. Our class was graciously invited to Puerto Rico this past January to visit their manufacturing facility. We had a chance to speak with them about the biopharma industry in Puerto Rico and their experience dealing with the Hurricane Maria disaster. Since your project involves seeking private investment to the island of Puerto Rico, what is your impression about what drew the biopharma industry so heavily to the island? And do you think the industry is still thriving there? That's a, a great question. And believe it or not, that's actually one of the questions that I'm uh, trying to uh, wrestle with the most. Uh, first off, some numbers. Pharma, just biopharma, represents about, uh, depending on how you slice it, 30 to 45% of GDP, depending on what industries you actually include in that. There's nine pharma uh, companies that represent 20% of Puerto Rico's GDP, uh, and they're, you know, the nine largest pharma companies in the planet are rep well represented in Puerto Rico. But you add to that some medical device manufacturing. So we like to call that cluster essentially the life sciences cluster. Um, bottom line is that Puerto Rico needs to keep that cluster in there no matter what, because if you lose, uh, for whatever reason, uh, either uh, a, a disruptive event, like they leave, after another hurricane or a more subtle but equally corrosive event, which is where they just defer all their capex and invest it in other parts of the world, Puerto Rico is, you know, will lose a significant amount of its GDP and not really have an ability to recover it. Uh, the, the tax policies are not there. The, the government systems are not there. So it's, it's imperative to keep that industry on the island. They came to the island because they had tremendous tax breaks under this law called 936, which gave them a ton of tax breaks. It expired when Puerto Rico's, uh, those 936 laws were actually part of a bargaining chip uh, for NAFTA. I'm, I'm, I'm going very quickly through this, but bear with me. Uh, and after that, you saw a degradation of the pharma cluster. So what we see in Puerto Rico now is actually just a shadow of what used to be um, present on the island in you know, the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, and, and even before. So where are they? Uh, they are in a tough situation because they have to compete both internally and externally. Uh, on the pharma side, tremendous potential disruption uh, based on, you know, they have the money to pay for good electricity, for example, but they don't have the money to pay for uh, a disruption that causes untold millions in lost product and uh, and and you know 
lost supply. So for them, stable power and stable economics, stable economic and tax policy is absolutely indispensable because they're going to take five years to have to, to realize an investment, five, 10, 15 years. They need to be able to, to make that analysis now and not be surprised in five years when all of a sudden somebody says, hey, you know what, I changed my mind on the tax policy in Puerto Rico. And that's currently preventing additional investment on the island. On the medical device side, they have a different issue. They actually compete on price in many cases uh, because these are, although they're not necessarily commoditized goods, there are a lot of internal external competitors out there in the market. So uh, OPEX controlling operational expenses is a significant issue. Power is a major one of those. Uh, and and therefore we're, we're working with, with those entities to see how we can uh, create the right conditions for for them to stay on the island, quite honestly. So that's that's really the nugget. You know, they, I think they're the pharma industry in Puerto Rico is is probably one of the most important sectors, if not the single most important private sector on the island to maintain a good flow of capital, good jobs, good impact to the economy, and frankly keeping Puerto Rico on the map. You know, when Maria hit, there was actually disruptions of of some products in the global market because Puerto Rico was the number one producer of those. We need to, we want to do whatever it takes to, you know, in ethical and fair manner, make sure that those firms remain on island. For our last question, based on the wide variety of experiences you've had from military to private to government, what is the one lesson or personal strategy you would give to a current student or a recent graduate of Sloan? I think my, my when all is said and done and I, I, I run out of good ideas, I think I always roll back to the right answer is good communication. Um, and that has so many corollaries. Uh, you know, picking up the phone to talk to the person that you least want to that day is probably gonna be the most important thing you do that day. Uh, assuming that you are communicating, you know, the, barrier, the greatest barrier to effective communication is the illusion that it has happened. You know, people have been at too many meetings where, you know, people just talk over each other and they just wanna hear themselves talk and they're talking two different languages and don't realize that they're not doing that. Uh, to use an aphorism uh, sometimes attributed to a uh, to uh, Mark Twain, but I think it's somebody else. Um, I would have written something shorter if I would have had more time. Uh, you know, uh, and I know I gave you about three or four of them, but they're all the right answer is good communication. Leveraging that human network to either discover, create, develop, further implement ideas is is really at the core of everything we do. Um, you know, I was an engineer, you guys are too. And sometimes as engineers, we have this tendency to go, well, you know, the numbers are right. So therefore I must be correct. And, and we forget that we're dealing with humans and that sometimes persuasion and understanding the other person's point of view and communicating that properly is far more important. So if I had nothing else to, to say, and if I had to distill my experience at MIT and Sloan into one pithy comment, it would probably be that. The right answer is good communication. Our second guest is Deanna Flores, who is the head of HR at Amgen Puerto Rico. 
During our visit to their campus, we were impressed by the state-of-the-art facilities, but the biggest impact came from learning about the actions Amgen took to protect his community before, during, and after the hurricane. We sat down with Deanna to learn more about how Amgen prepares for emergency operations and the important lessons learned from Hurricane Maria. Thank you for the opportunity to be part of the, the podcast here at MIT. It's a pleasure for us to, to be able to speak today a little bit more about Amgem and what we did specifically in our facility in Puerto Rico. To give you a little bit more information myself, my name is Diana, Diana Flores. I'm the HR director here at our manufacturing site. I've been with Amgem for over 13 years already. Um, in my responsibility here as HR lead for the facility, of course, is managing the important piece, which is our people, managing our staff and, and our facility. So I have from the parts compensation benefit, talent acquisitions. Um, in addition to that, I also manage um, corporate communications, also um, external community, things that we do, Amgen beyond um, our manufacturing facility, um, governmental affairs, and of course security. Security falls under human resources here at our site. It's a very large manufacturing facility, very proud to say that we have, I would say, like 90% of, of our manufacturing operations are run from here in terms of operations, products that go through our site. So it's a very, it's a flagship. It's a very complex operation where we do all uh, our products. I would say more than 10 of our products are done here at, at, at our manufacturing site. Let's launch into what Amgen was doing for Maria. Could you talk about how your teams prepared for Maria and how you might have had to adapt those plans as things changed? One of the things that, at least here in the island, we're right in the middle of the Caribbean. So if you look at the different storms that are formed or even hurricanes that are formed, we're right in that pathway in terms of being one of the small islands here in the, in the Caribbean. Yet we always prepared and Amgen has prepared themselves for several years. We have a strong business continuity plan, which allows us to, one, to have redundant um, power generators, but even triple redundant systems in our site. In addition to that, we've made investments, capital investments, as the years have gone by, in terms to ensure also that we would have um, what we call water wells. We have sufficient millions of gallons of water available if we should be short of, of, of water. So these investments are something that we haven't we didn't do, let's say, in one or two years, let's say in the last decade, we have been improving as we've grown the site. We have done a strong business continuity plan. And very importantly, what do we do before any type of storm comes in? As a company, we do also what we call a yearly basis. We have a crisis management um, team that we do a corporate drill. And during this drill, we simulate any type of disruptive event that a facility could be impacted. So we, what we do on a yearly basis, we do this simulation and we say, okay, what if an earthquake comes along? What if a fire comes along? What if we have any type of active shooter coming to the site? So we do, uh, at yearly, we're prepared and we prepare ourselves to do a simulation just in case a worst scenario should come along. And during 2017, when Maria came to the island, we put all of that in practice. So I think it's very important for us to have one, the appropriate inventory of products that we have to get prepared for the worst if something should happen. And, and of course, even with the drills, it's good because we also do our lessons learned what went well during these drills, what can we improve, and we put it in practice in full life when Maria happened in our facility. 
So um, from there, what we do is before the storm, it's very important to say that we have a, a crisis management team. And each and every one of the members have a responsibility and a role during the storm. We have also staff that uh, we call them essential staff. Essential staff are critical for the operations and in case of a disruptive event, since we have operations that run 24 hours, they can't be stopped. We try to, one, in case of a disruptive event that we have to evacuate employees from the site, we try to leave a minimum amount of people here in the facility because they're crucial and critical to maintain the operation with what we call essential staff. So we identify them, they're trained before, and so when we close our site in the case of Maria, we have less than 100 employees here on site, and we establish a lead, a lead who's responsible, in this case it was our site um, VP, who's responsible for the security of all the staff that stay here on site, and we do a close down, a site shutdown. No one is allowed to leave the facility, or no one is allowed to come in during that time of the storm. So it's, it's something that we worked on in terms of a business continuity plan to ensure that when that moment comes, we have our people prepared. And when we say prepared, not only are they trained, we take care of them here on site, providing them food. They, they do shifts in terms of resting, sleeping while they're here in the facility. And at the same time, they're really receiving clear directions from one leader, letting them know updates of what's occurring during that time. So even though we've had minor storms that have gone through the site and we've had to do our business continuity plan and we have um, allowed employees to leave the facility and stay with a smaller crew, it has helped us. And when Maria came along, well, we had to, of course, do the same. And it took them two days. Actually, they were here two days during that time. Okay. So that is important for you. And then another piece is the communication, how we prepare ourselves before. Um, communications is important. We work with major radio stations. We have a 1-800 number that we give updates to our staff so they could know what's happening, what's in terms of what's going to be occurring um, during these events, and when we are projected to open the facility once again for operation. So I think it's important, the communication with, with our staff during that time. It sounds like you guys had a really good plan ready ahead of time. But was there something that took your teams by surprise despite your preparation and practice? I think that during that time, one of the things that we, when you say you have you have redundant electrical equipment, we, we went fine there, we had water, we had electricity during all that time. I think one of the things that, that even though you have, you were prepared was the internet and also the communication. Because at some point, um, all the internet access went down, our systems went down, um, and also the towers of AT&T and the major cellular phone companies also went down on the island because of how large the storm was. So based on that, um, when, after the storm went along, we didn't have practically no communication in terms of internet communication. With our phone lines were down, so we had our IS team working externally with um, these large communication companies. So for us, we, we do have a system which we have satellite phones, um, which we have 15, let's say, an amount of satellite phones for us to be able to communicate with corporate, and those were the ones that we were using. And satellite phones, phones are, they have their pro and their cons. They tend to, they're not so effective as, as, they, as you expect, but 
it was the only way that we were able to communicate with corporate at that time and with, with our colleagues outside, letting them know what, the, what was occurring on the site. So for us, that was a big major um, learned also for us because once your communication goes down, how do you go out and, and, and start establishing communication even with your people, with your staff, and, and with the rest of our colleagues around operation? Could you speak a little bit more about what that problem-solving process is like? You have thousands of people in your teams, in addition to multiple layers of leadership and corporate. How did you guys manage that organizationally? Well, you know, we, we have a team, immediately our site leadership team, we met together and we would have, twice in the day, we would have a communication meeting between, among us. In the morning, we would set up to say what were the goals that each and every one of us had to achieve because we had seven different work streams of things that we wanted to improve, to, to achieve. One is to start our manufacturing facility, ensure that it was in our GMP environment. Second, that we wanted, from my perspective, ensure that our staff was safe, that we understood that no one was uh, had suffered any type of damages to themselves or to their homes. So our first thing was to get a staff accounted um, in terms of people. So this team, our leadership team, we would meet twice a day in the morning with the different action plans that we were going to be doing in the evening. In the afternoon, we would meet once again on a daily basis, seven days a week, and we did this for several weeks. Another thing that we did was, as you mentioned, if we didn't have communication, what did we do? Thanks to um, our colleagues at corporate office in Thousand Oaks, we were able to set up a 1-800 number. So if people had landlines land at their home, they were able to call that 1-800 number. Something that we did here on the site was that as people had access to come to the facility, they would come to the site and we needed maybe a crew of 800 people to start off our operations at that moment. But anyone who came that wasn't, we were, we did, it was very, it was wonderful to see the amount of people that were coming wanting to help. But we were saying we just need a maximum of these amount of people in these areas at this moment. But it was overwhelming to see that they were coming. We, what we would do is we would get their names and phone numbers, and then we would reconciliate every day, twice a day, to be sure who had come on site, who were accounted for, and we would use also then our access control system that we did have available, and then we would do a reconciliation. We even had um, available for us, it's interesting, through Facebook and, and social media, um, our colleagues at Thousand Oaks were able then to, to find out of names of employees through social media that they knew that were well, and they would help us then say, okay, we already got communication with these employees, and we know that, that um, they're fine, they're doing well, or if, if they need any support. So it was interesting because we used different media to be able to get our full um, staff accounted. And thank goodness, everyone was accounted at the end of the day. We have 1,900 staff members, in addition to over 1,200 contractors. And in a two, in the, I would say like in two weeks and a half, we were able to account for all of our staff, which was for us very critical. Okay. So as I mentioned to you, during, during that time, we did have um, work streams. We had seven teams from different members of the group that would go out and, and they would come back with their what they were accomplishing during the day in terms of the operation, electricity, being sure that we had enough electricity, being sure that we had enough um, support and supplies for our staff when we were working at that moment. So I would say that it was a, a it was important for us to want to have a clear vision and focus of what we were going to be managing in order to say that we were fortunate that in five weeks we were able to have our operation up and running. 
So I think it's very important to have a clear direction during that time and sharing. Um, and we would give updates. We went back to the moments that since we didn't have internet access, we created in the cafeteria a center. It was like a center for our employees. Uh, uh, and we did what we did is that every update in terms of things that were going for well for the site, support that we were providing them, they would go to the center and we would post them in paper in a board because there was no communication and internet at that moment. And we would go to each and every one of the buildings with updates, things that they should know about. Like we have um, food available for you at the cafeteria. We have blessing bags available for you with first aid supplies so you could take them to your home. Or if you need any support or know of anyone that has lost their homes, please let, let us know. So HR created like the center in the cafeteria where we would, that would be like our point of communication and contact as our systems came up and running and then we could be able to communicate with the people through the internet. So in addition to the amazing job you guys did managing the organization and the business, I wanted to highlight some of the amazing things that Amgen was doing for your employees. You'd share some of it with us during our visit, but could you elaborate on some of the personal support Amgen was providing at the time? One of the things that we were able to, to do, and, and so it, it, I would say like two or three weeks, we were able to open up a center here, which was a camp. We called it Camp Phoenix. And Camp Phoenix is which actually a complex. It's a very large complex that had like uh, availability for at least 32 beds for staff that was colleagues that were flying in to support us. And at that time, remember, there weren't many hotels open or very few hotels available open. So we did have colleagues and partners that were coming in to help us and with with um, what we call um, in that time we were we were working with with opening the facilities and and restoring it. So we had people that were flying in. So they, this this complex in the center had availability even of, of beds. So they if they needed to sleep there. In addition to that, no electricity. Water was coming little by little to to the island. So people needed ice. So in this complex, what we did also is that we put a center where we were producing ice. So we would give our employees 10 bags, uh, 10, um, two bags of, of 10 pounds of ice on a daily basis. Um, we did this for approximately like three months so they could take it to their homes or share it with their family so they had ice available. Um, there were also showers. There were showers available if people needed to, to you make use of the showers, they were also available. And then one of the things that we noticed also was the aspect that there was any, any electricity. Our employees needed power generators for their home. So we were able to work with our colleagues um, and, and we were able to ship over 1,900 power generators to the facility. Um, where the employees only paid for the cost of it and absorbed the rest of the cost of shipping and bringing it. But we were able to distribute 1,900 1, generators for them. In addition to that, at the first three weeks, um, and maybe if you saw it on the news, there was issue also of the distribution of gasoline to employees. And so people, and, and you would see there were long lines of people that were hours trying to get their, their tank full for gasoline. So one of the things that we were able is to bring a company here on site and we would provide gasoline, a full tank for a week to our staff 
for the following three weeks, and they could even fill up their five-gallon container for their power generator. So we provided them also gasoline during that during that period of time of three weeks, which for them, people who were traveling and living far away, it was such uh, an excellent um, opportunity for them because one of their limitations was, what if I don't have any gas? How do I fill my tank? Um, in addition to that, um, something that we worked very closely was also to provide them what we, we call them blessing bags. Actually, they were bags full of food, first aid equipment, flashlights, um, um, power, uh, small batteries. Um, and we, we received a lot of, of supplies that were coming in, which were supplies that we wanted to provide our staff. So um, we did it in, in different phases, but we were able to distribute over 10,000 bags of blessing bags to our employees so they could take them home um, for them and, and for their family. So, you know, these are several examples of, of things that when you put yourself in the position that what were critically needed for them, we understood that these were things that, that were uh, that necessary for them. And, and besides that, at least those that were working here on site in those first three to four weeks in the recovery phase, we would provide breakfast, lunch, um, three meals a day. So that way they we the company was paying for that so it was like they're here if you're here with us i think that we have a, lar a large facility we have like 22 buildings here on site in the infrastructure the, when it comes to the buildings our technology our patients are so important for us but for us to be able to do that recovery it was important for us the component of people and our people actually raised up to the occasion and they demonstrated their full commitment and supporting them because they're very clear that their mission for them is our patient and, and getting our supplies and our medicines out to them. And definitely we counted with all the support of our staff. And when we came up five weeks later, we had a 98% attendance of our employees coming back to work. So once again, it demonstrates their strong commitment to the company and, and we're very proud to have them um, as part of our recovery. To turn that around a little bit, you talked about how committed your employees are to Amgen, but maybe we can end this on how Amgen is committing to the Puerto Rico community. How do you see Amgen's involvement in Puerto Rico developing and even growing in the future? I think definitely we're, we're one of the largest manufacturing sites and I think Amgen demonstrated to us their full commitment to, to our operations and to our patients and to our employees. I think that during a, a moment like this where you could see that that um, it's 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 a critical moment. We always feel that we were being supported 120% by our colleagues uh, and across not only in Thousand Oaks but across the rest of the facilities. It was a true commitment of, of one being sure that we were safe, two being sure that we would be in a better recovery, and three it, um, in terms of what it came to preparing and constructing and, and fixing the infrastructure of our facility. That was something that we knew um, the company could make commitments and, and were up and running a year and a half later. The interesting part is that, of course, with the community, what we have been working very closely, because when we think about our community, we also think about our employees, because our employees are part of their community, or they know friends and families. So some of the things that Amgen did um, to help us um, support our community is through the Amgen Foundation. They set up a fund of $2 million, and there's a local committee that we're very proud to be part of that the foundation told us, we want you to go out and identify what are the critical needs in our community. So 
um, we did focus our funds to the universities and also local elementary schools that had suffered severe damage due to the storm. So part of that funding has gone to them and we've been able to go out and see how things are being reconstructed and their facilities are up and running, even up for laboratories for the universities, uh, electronical and computer systems, labs that went down, even basketball courts for elementary students that, that they suffered damages. We reconstructed three of them here in the Juncos community where we are at. In addition to that, during the time of the storm, we did help restore power generators for the hospitals, for supermarkets, provided also donations of generator. And during that time, it was near Christmas time, thanks to our local team and our colleagues across Thousand Oaks, we were able to celebrate um, a Christmas activity for the community and we gave out 5,000 meals to the community and toys for the children to make it like, you know, during all of this event and, and what has happened, we still have hope that it's, it was going to be a great Christmas and Amgen wanted to be present. So these are several of the examples that we, we do and we work very closely to our community that's important for us is once again, um, our schools, education and science and technology, we want to know that you know Amgen is here as a partner through the foundation we were able to provide donations to, to different entities. In addition to the items Deanna mentioned, Amgen also provided on-site banking services, drinking water, phones, physicians, and laundry services to its employees during the Maria recovery. This is the final episode directed by the LGO class of 2020. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Katon and Ling signing off. Good luck to the class of 2021. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode. Thanks to Eric Ferris and Josh Jacobs for their help and Gar Av for the music.